0: Hey, welcome back everyone. This is Behind the Stigma with Ciara Minova. And today we'll be talking about critical psychiatry and its ties to the DSM. In today's episode, I have a very special guest speaker who has inspired me personally with his work, Nick Fortino. Nick is a psychology professor at the University of Silicon Valley, Gavilan College, and San Jose City College in the United States. He's also a researcher, educator, and a trained teacher in Ashtanga Yoga. Nick has also conducted research on psychological disorders and non-debilitating treatments. Not only that, Nick is best known for his YouTube channel called Psychology Is, which has now been extended to a podcast series since July 2020. I am actually obsessed with the Psychology Is podcast. They have episodes starting from neuropsychology to psychiatric drugs, all the way to healing from trauma, and just so much rich information. So do make sure to check it out. In fact, that is how I connected to Nick in the first place, which I am very grateful for. Nick, you bring some awesome guests on the show, and I was personally so happy when I came across your podcast because a lot of the topics you talk about resonate so much with me personally. And one of those topics is the questioning of our methods in psychiatry, in specific to uh, psychiatric drugs, and its ties to the DSM and whether you know we can be well without the use of medications. So these are some of the things that we will talk about today. So, Nick, a very big and warm welcome to you. And I'm truly appreciative of you taking the time to be a part of this episode and the BTS podcast. But before we go into the discussion about psychiatric practices, I think our listeners and myself would love to hear a bit more about your background and how you came to being a practicing psychologist and just your ideology on the mental health field today. Mm.
1: <clears throat> well, this welcome does feel very warm. Thank you. And it's my pleasure to be here. There's, yeah, it's my background is one defined by an early love of psychology and curiosity about people. And I've had life experiences that just pushed me onto a path of formally studying and becoming a psychologist. And the work I get to do is very rich and interesting and something I couldn't have predicted when I was studying to become a psychologist. I love education. I think there can even be a therapeutic value in education and obviously a very inspiring value to education. So my work as a professor is just extremely meaningful to me. I had some professors that are coming to my mind now who were incredibly influential on me and inspired me to inspire others. So I love that work. And then I also get to work in a jail and that the role I fulfill in the jail, to be honest, it seems kind of perfect because on paper, what I'm doing is I'm offering a class, a college course called personal development. And so in a way for many people in the jail, there's no stigma really around coming to class. It's not like they have to tell everyone else in their pod I'm about to go to my therapy session. <laughs> for them it seems to be a little bit more inviting to think of it as a class. And then what happens in the class is always, you know, therapeutic I would say. And we meet as a small group and we get to talk about ideas, you know, and evidence in psychology that could be useful for them. And they have plenty of opportunity to process what's going on for them personally, and in the small group setting, I think that's just a very special context, you know, the small group. So, th- yeah, that's that's kind of my background and my wow. presence, and there's there's more I could say, but that that feels complete for now.
0: Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, especially about the jail work you do. It's so important that you create the space for people who may feel helpless or hopeless and kind of giving them, you know, a place for inner reflection and growth and changing that narrative of the usual stigma that surrounds them. So, Nick, when was the first time you noticed that? Our definitions of mental disorders and its classifications in the DSM-5 are perhaps not as clear as the public thinks. And maybe here you can introduce in more detail what the DSM-5 is as well.
1: Yes. This is a very important topic. And over time, as I've learned more, I've just realized it's such a nuanced, complex topic. So I began to realize that the I I like to use the term constructs, like the or concepts. The concepts in the DSM are worth questioning. It was kind of a slow dawning, like a sun rising slowly, instead of a sudden realization. And it started, I would say, in in graduate school. And when I really, you know, of course, what we love about graduate school is that you can personalize your your experience very, very much. And you can study what you are interested in. So I was very interested in how we can alleviate so many of the debilitating, you know, psychological issues that people are experiencing. And so I had, you know, there's so many directions I could go with that. But what really sparked my interest in that moment was, I mean, it really comes down to a story I heard about a woman who was severely depressed, and then a doctor gave her heavy doses of vitamins, and she was suddenly way better. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, skeptical and but curious above all. So I looked into that. And interestingly, there wasn't as much evidence about the connection between depression. And this was vitamin B3, as I expected, but there was much more related to niacin in treating schizophrenia. So I looked into that and I did a whole dissertation where I interviewed people who had who were using, you know, this vitamin based treatment and who were even able to reduce or completely come off of their psychiatric drugs, also without succumbing to schizophrenic symptoms again. And so that's kind of another topic, you know, the the merit of that approach, because I do think the evidence is mixed. But in the journey through studying that, that is what really brought me deep into the work of like Thomas Saz, for example, Mm -hmm. who, as many people know, wrote the book, The Myth of Mental Illness. And if that's such a bold statement, right, we use the word mental illness so casually, it's just part of the many cultures nomenclature. But to question that in the way that he did is, and, and I believe he his his points have not ever been countered by anyone who yes. believes that mental illnesses are you know real and just like physical illnesses and that we should be, be using the word il- illnesses mm-hmm. so that work along with other seminal works throughout the past decades and just looking more closely at um the history of psychiatry and exactly what it takes to become a psychiatrist and in talking about all of this and all the crit- criticisms i have i want to respect psychiatrists as as people and as very intelligent well-studied people who have great intentions usually so it's not individual psychiatrists that i'm criticizing except sometimes it is to be honest <laughs> but as a as a whole it's more the paradigm of psychiatry. So that was kind of the, the studies that really opened my eyes. And then I had the the practical field experience, you know, in the, in my classes, you know, there's just, we don't, people don't typically open up about it in front of a class of 60, 70 people. But I've had so many conversations one-on-one with students who have described to me their experience of reporting symptoms or reporting Basically, their emotional struggles and their difficulty in, in adapting to their situations and just the stories of how quickly they've been diagnosed with something and quickly they've been prescribed a drug and then the jail work is really what kind of opened my eyes the rest of the way because I just witness the way that very clever people in jail see see through the practices of psychiatry and wow. and basically manipulate it by doing what's called malingering you know so mm-hmm. the whole the the way that psychiatric conditions are diagnosed is by observing behavior and listening to people's reports of their symptoms and making a judgment you know seeing which category it fits into best and whether you hit all of the different criteria for a diagnosis but the thing is someone can so easily fake that you can just act and I have heard pretty hilarious stories I hate to say it's hilarious because I'm aware of the subversive nature of this but it's hilarious the acting jobs that people have put on and what's their motivation is different in different situations like Sometimes you can get, you know, you can get disability if you have a diagnosis so people can get money from the government and not have to work mm. or they can get drugs, mm-hmm. of course. That's the main one. So there's my answer.
0: Wow. There definitely is a complexity in how we understand mental disorders. But for me, one of the biggest issues in the field, I think, is how psychiatrists are so quick to medicate people And unfortunately, there's a danger in saying that there's something wrong with psychiatry and kind of questioning some of the motives in the field, the way Thomas Saz did, who is also one of my biggest influences in my way of thinking. But yeah, it's almost as if if you say something bad about it, then you're immediately labeled as an anti-psychiatrist or someone who doesn't want people to get better. Or, you know, you're just this evil who's creating more stigma, which, of course, isn't the case, I also want to expand on the DSM itself, as not everyone listening may understand or know of its origins, which I think is very important to understand the nature of our diagnosis. So how did it come together? Can you walk us through the process of how the DSM-5 is being used and what steps a patient needs to go through to kind of get that diagnosis?
1: Yes for just a little bit of historical context, the first DSM ever published was in 1952. Prior to that, you know, the field of psychiatry existed and the DSM in a way kind of existed, but it was primarily just a way to track statistics about so-called mentally ill, ill people. So that was pretty much all it was in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. But then, you know, as the field of psychiatry came more of a thing more of a distinct specialty and especially as in the u.s as war veterans were coming back from world war ii and so many of them were completely traumatized by combat and what they witnessed um there was like there is no unified language among psychiatrists and psychologists for how to describe what these people were going through. Mm. And that was a major motivation to develop a central kind of um, guidebook for understanding what people are going through and how we classify these different experiences. So that was part of the primary motivation. And so in 1952, the DSM-1 was published. And when you examine it, you know, people can find especially the first four online very easily in the PDF form and then the fifth one you know you can purchase it or it can be found but (laughs) if you just you can just look at them you know and and look at the language and how it evolves and in the beginning the language is more oriented towards psychology Mm -hmm. and kind of implicitly acknowledged that what we're dealing with here are mental emotional behavioral issues not neurological issues And so the language reflects that in the early DSM. And there was 106 disorders in that one. And then the general context around this right now, like 1950s, is psychiatry as a field and the things that they were doing to people were out of control. Frontal lobotomies, just torturous forms of so-called therapy dilapidated disgusting insane asylums and so that called that that gave psychiatry like what is known as a crisis of legitimacy and psychiatry has confronted these crises of legitimacy throughout its history and I personally think it's in another one right now and I think you 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 know you're wise to point out that problem in just dismissing someone as being anti-psychiatry that has such a dismissive tone that's such a oversimplification of someone's criticisms usually but anyway we can we can kind of come back to that but just to finish the question about the dsm the second one came out in 1968 And then the third one came out in 1980. And during this time, psychiatry was really trying to establish itself as a legitimate scientific field. And so you see the language of the DSM-2 and 3 reflect that and become a little bit more reflective of language used in other medical specialties. And so then the DSM-4 came out in 1994. And with each DSM, the number of conditions is increasing significantly significantly the criteria for what each diagnosis entails is changing with each version of the DSM. And then the fifth one came out in 2013. And now there's, depending on how you count, over 300 disorders in there. Yeah. And it's not, it's like, it's interesting because it's, it's, I think it's, it's a useful document, but there's just a bunch of meanings associated with the diagnosis that become very problematic. And there's a whole paradigm within which the DSM is being used that makes it problematic. So, like, and I know I'm saying a lot and I want to let you, of course, respond. But, like, I think four good key terms for people to keep in mind are diagnosis, etiology or cause, prognosis, and treatment. Because, the DSM really only addresses the one of those diagnosis, and there's all kinds of things we can say about the validity of each mm-hmm. diagnosis and the impact of mm-hmm. diagnosing someone with something, and the and then and then we have to also acknowledge what what people are then led to believe about the etiology, the cause of their condition, because the DSM doesn't try to tell you that. That is just a, sm- a sort of message that gets smuggled into the diagnosis. Is it implies what's causing it, and okay. psychiatry? I just think, generally speaking, couldn't be more wrong about what is causing it. The general cultural narrative of the chemical imbalance theory, as Doctor Peter Gutsch has said on my podcast, actually mm-hmm. is stone dead. There's just simply no evidence for it, and then. The word prognosis means, like, the belief about the future course of this condition. What would happen, especially if it went untreated? Is it terminal? Is it a two-week-long thing? Is it severe? Is it minor? So, there's messages around the prognosis. And then treatment, of course. Like, what's the best way to treat this? And the treatment is usually related to what you believe the cause is Mm -hmm. so if you believe the cause is a chemical imbalance then you use drugs to try to so apparently counter that imbalance so there's problems in the messages of psychiatry to the culture and to individuals on each of those four main bullet points
0: yeah You actually mentioned a few things that I did want to bring up, and these are extremely important points that the general public don't always know. So, for example, I want to emphasize the part where you mentioned that treatment is tied down to the cause or what we believe the cause of a particular issue or diagnosis is, because mainstream psychiatry is mainly based on the notion that mental illness is a so-called brain disease. But the DSM-5 classifications are based on, and I emphasize this, observable behaviors that we measure empirically, not biological processes that we measure empirically. So meaning that there are currently no brain scans or blood tests for mental disorders, at least not yet. So this brings another very important question in the field, which you already mentioned of what we know as the chemical imbalance theory theory. Now, we know since the 1950s, pharmacotherapy became a very prominent way of treating mental disorders, for example, depression, as there was an understanding that the monoamine system, so noradrenaline, serotonin, and dopamine neurotransmitters, were the main contributors to the disorder. And medications such as SSRIs and SNRIs were able to fix that. So, you know, bring the neurotransmitter levels back to normal. And a lot of people, you know, have actually asked me this personally when I'm in discussion with them about the biological implications of mental health. They say, well, what about the chemical imbalances in the brain? Don't people with depression have a chemical imbalance? Don't people with bipolar, schizophrenia? So Nick, is this really the case? Are some mental disorders really due to an imbalance in neurotransmitters in the brain?
1: Mm this is probably not the answer you expect, but this is my answer. Mm -hmm. Maybe. But you would have to confirm that before you introduce a treatment Mm -hmm. that is is supposedly correcting it. It, it, it's, It's almost like an oncologist prescribing chemotherapy before confirming that there's actually cancer. And I think in most cases no there is not a chemical imbalance causing something. Maybe in some cases there are but here the other thing is that even if there is it kind of it, it really does start to then connect to the the question of the relationship between the mind or and emotions and the psyche and mm-hmm. the body because it is possible that the brain state that someone is in, is the chemical state of someone's brain is being caused by their mental emotional experience Mm -hmm. in the same way that, you know, I know it's maybe a strange example, but in the same way that a person could have a wet dream and ejaculate (laughs) while sleeping because they're having a dream, right? In a way, the dream caused that. So if, Mm -hmm. if you have somebody who let's say was severely traumatized, and then years later, that trauma is continuing to produce horrifying images in their mind. And those images are causing this rush of adrenaline and the amygdala to fire off and their brain to be in this anxious fear state. You can look at their brain and you can say, oh, look, their brain is causing them to be upset right now. But the reality is actually their upset, their trauma, their mental processes are causing their brain to be in this chemical state. And some people disagree with this because they don't give any kind of causal influence to the mind. But I do see it that way. So, so it's like, you know, another, I'll refer to Dr. Peter Gutsche again, he uses the analogy of like, if you stumble upon a building that burned down, and you see that all there's left is ashes... You might infer that the ashes caused the building to burn down. And so, and obviously that's mm-hmm. not what happened. They're just correlated mm-hmm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. So, so there's that you know, there's that, but above all, you know, there's no evidence for the chemical imbalance theory. And there's definitely no effort to try and verify that before actually, again, using a treatment that supposedly corrects it.
0: Yeah. I think when I was first reading about it, in particular, the works of Thomas Saas, what really blew my mind was that, you know, let's say, for example, you go to a psychiatrist and you have a diagnosis of depression and he tells you that, yes, this condition of yours is due to a chemical imbalance in your brain. But I mean, but how does he know that? How does he know that your brain particularly has a chemical imbalance when he hasn't even checked your brain? And I think this is the biggest danger in our way of understanding mental health. You know, I doubt you'd ever be diagnosed with diabetes if they don't check your insulin or blood sugar levels. And I think the disease model or the medical model that is still somehow dominating the field in psychiatry needs to be pushed towards the biopsychosocial model, which takes into consideration psychological stressors and social factors such as, you know, extreme or everyday stress. And so I definitely agree that our emotions, our traumas, our childhood deprivations are all factors that need to be considered way more seriously than just prescribing a drug. Yes. But, you know, despite the complexities of the causes, and, you know, perhaps there is a chemical imbalance or not, psychiatric drugs and over-medication is off the roof, right? And so my question is, do these drugs still help people? I mean, some people, right? What is the evidence of the efficacy, I should say, in supporting these drugs? And also... What are the, what are some of the dangers to them?
1: Mm. Thank you for asking this question. It is, you know, another moment. Like I I, I use the phrase out of control referring to like the 1950s, but Mm -hmm. I would again use that phrase now. And I know that's a bold statement and, but it's time to be kind of bold. It's time to just not be afraid to call out what we are recognizing, which is, far too much, um, I'm going to use the word drugging, and again, I'm like trying to be very careful because I don't want to come off as someone who's not really grounded, but but I don't think medicating is actually delivering the right message here, Mm -hmm. because if you think about a medicine, it's something that the body needs, and a drug, on the other hand, simply produces an effect, and that's what psychiatric drugs do. They produce an effect. They don't treat anything. That's not. It's not like the body's deficient in Paxil. So, they are drugs. And do drugs help people? I mean, sure. Alcohol mm-hmm. helps people. Yeah. Cannabis helps people. All drugs have effects that are desirable and effects that are undesirable. And... When you really just get honest and classify psychiatric drugs as the psychoactive substances that they are, which have been deemed legal and patentable, of course, which makes mm. them incredibly profitable, which makes for any, any studies conducted by the industry or the company that gains to profit from the drug being tested, you, that there's too much bias in a study like that. For mm. me personally... I need non-industry funded research to really objectively examine the efficacy and safety of these drugs. And Robert Whitaker has, I think, conducted the most exhaustive literature review of non-industry funded research. Mm -hmm. And the evidence is quite poor for safety, for long-term efficacy. Because in the same way, we all, you know, anyone who's drank alcohol knows there's very desirable effects around it, around it. But what tends to happen, you know, with most drugs is that the balance of f- desirable and undesirable effects changes over time to where eventually it's actually predominantly the undesirable effects that you're experiencing. And sometimes it gets to the point where the drug is nothing more than a relief from the cravings. And this mm. is Also, the case with psychiatric drugs, you know, you can you can recognize a pattern of behavior around it that could be classified as an addiction. But I'm so sensitive to the fact that there are many people, maybe listening now, who have Mm. taken a psychiatric drug, found tremendous relief Mm -hmm. from their anxiety or their depression or whatever they were experiencing, were capable of becoming functional again, and would generally say that it's been mostly helpful. And so I, I respect that. And I think people should have the choice, the informed choice to take them if they'd like. But I think the the level of informed that most people are when they start taking psychiatric drugs is so profoundly low compared yeah. to what they should know, what they need to know, what is important to know about the evidence of these drugs. So... So yeah, I mean efficacy they clearly reduce symptoms in the short term.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the effects of long term are quite problematic and complicated. And if I may say just one more quick thing, I think there's this term a psychiatrist who kind of left the field of psychiatry, her name's Kelly Brogan. She's criticized in mm-hmm. many ways and um but anyway, I was she, just
0: about to bring uh her, her up because she was in your podcast last week. Yes, great discussion, by the way. Yeah, sorry, go, go, go. For no,
1: it. thank you. I'm. Gl- thank you for listening. That means so much. No, and it's great. So you heard the phrase "psychiatric pretenders." I think that's really insightful because so what she's talking about are actual physical conditions that produce symptoms that could look a lot like a psychological disorder, and so you know one example is like hypothyroidism. So if you were to meet with a psychiatrist and you had and you had hypothyroidism, it would likely go unnoticed that you actually had that physical condition. What would likely happen is you would be diagnosed with major depressive disorder because a lot of the symptoms of hypothyroidism look like that. And then what you have is a very now complicated situation where there's an untreated physical condition and a, a psychoactive substance just introduced into the system. So. It's it's problematic that we're so quick to diagnose things as as yes. psychological disorders before doing thorough physical examinations to make sure that the reason this person's behavior, emotions, and mentality is what it is, is because of a physical condition. Or it, it could be a neurological condition. It's, prob- it's not a chemical imbalance, probably, but it could very well be something else. There's like a great movie called Brain on Fire, which mm. depicts this a young woman being diagnosed with all these different psychological disorders when all along it was a very uh, distinct neurological abnormality. And once it was diagnosed, it was treated and she was cured, truly cured in the way physical diseases get cured. So...
0: Oh, wow, I, I know it's it's really crazy because in one of my modules of affective disorders, we learned that before diagnosing someone, you need to identify a form of organic disease or check for any other issues, you know, whether it's neurological or as you gave the example of um, hyperthyroidism. But, you know, that's never usually the case. I mean, how many times does it actually happen that you go to a GP or a psychiatrist And, you know, they refer you to other doctors to try to identify an organic cause because the reality of it is that there's a high demand and a long waiting list of patients and psychiatrists and GPs get so many appointments on a day-to-day basis. So they don't really give that kind of needed attention and time to patients that they should. And, you know, you mentioned in your recent episode with Kelly Brogan, I remember she talked about how when she was still a practicing psychiatrist, she had a two-year waiting list of people trying to get off medication. And that really stuck with me. I mean, you know, clearly there's something in those meds that just doesn't sit well with us. And so there definitely, definitely needs to be an alternative. Yes. But it's also important, as you said you know, to mention about the sensitivity towards people that do resonate with psychiatric drugs, and it has worked on and has helped, which is absolutely great. I think this discussion is not on eliminating the drugs, obviously, but more on the caution that should be surrounding the drugs itself.
1: Yes. And if I may jump in and just add a super quick thing. I think it's just important for people to hear these words that millions of children in the u.s alone where i'm at are on psychiatric drugs Uh, and sometimes when i'm speaking in the way that i'm speaking with you here i almost feel like i sound like i'm ranting or something but there's just (laughs) passion behind this and i'm educated about it i've been studying it and tracking it and i i would just want to kind of I don't know. I, I I almost feel like there's a lack of indignance around this and that this is actually a very low hanging fruit in terms of the injustices in the world that children are being prescribed drugs and told to take them like throughout their entire, entire childhood. So if I sound passionate, it's for reasons like that, that it's it's truly out of control at this point. So anyway, I just wanted to add that.
0: Yes. Thank you so much for adding that that's such an important point. And you mentioned in the beginning, the DSM classifications, we started off with 106. And now I think we're over 400 disorders, if you look at the subcategories as well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those disorders are now diseases for children, like conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, like you mentioned, this is it's so dangerous, because that's our brains are still developing at that time and at that age. Mm -hmm. And to just feed kids with these drugs that are so strong could really have its consequences in the future. So I thank you for bringing that very important point and for people to really think a little bit, kind of a food for thought in that sense. Yes. Nick, as a final question, I wanted to ask you this, and I'm actually really am excited to hear your answer. What do you think is the future Of medicine for our mental health. We mentioned alternative, there should be alternative, like, you know, psychological or holistic treatments, or maybe even psychedelic drugs. Where do you see or hope to see the future in the field? Hmm.
1: What an important question. And I'm honored that you want to hear my answer. For one, on an individual level,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think a simple way to think of it, of a good immediate solution is we have to first cover the basics of well-being. The things that we know for sure are crucial for the individual's health, because currently we overlook a lot of that and and you know, and the, what the person is exhibiting could be a symptom of that. So, for example, sleep. I know it's mm. so basic, it's so simple, but if anybody, if any human organism goes without sleep for long enough, they will definitely exhibit symptoms that could be classified as a psychiatric disorder. So you could say, you know, you kind of scale that back from from extreme sleep dep- deprivation to just the more chronic sort of minor sleep deprivation. And then you begin to see, wow, that could actually explain a lot about my emotional instability, or whatever it may be. So covering the basics, Mm -hmm. and seeing how much of people's difficulties are alleviated by simply doing that. And I think the basics include sleeping, optimal sleep, optimal nutrition, social connection, meaning in life, that's more purely, you know, a psychological one, and then, of course, movement. So it's like the three basic physical ones: of sleep right, eat right, move enough. And that has to be potentially a cultural transformation. Uh, I mean, the various cultures of the world can collectively reflect on
0: mm-hmm. how much
1: are they valuing each of these basic tenets of human health. So you know, and you know, I think in the U.S that that's not a strong cultural message that you get. <laughs> you know, it's not like, yeah, sleep right, <laughs> eat right, move your beautiful body in whatever creative, fun way feels good to you. And then social connection. So what I what I think is so important to recognize is that often your difficult emotions are some of the most important signals mm-hmm. that something needs to change for the sake of your well being. And so if we, you know, pathologize those signals and think of them as signs of something wrong with me, that's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And so when a person is, has does not have meaningful social connections, they don't have whatever they need socially, the belonging, the love, the affection, the connection, there will always be signals that that's missing and those signals feel a lot like depression and sadness or that something's missing or longing and a lot of stuff that could be classified as a disorder. So making sure that on an individual level, on a kind of local community level and on a big cultural scale that we are valuing and promoting and creating opportunities for social connection, real authentic connection. And then, yeah, meaning in life. I think this is just a person, even if you're, um, even if you're like, Atheist and materialist, and might be disinclined toward entertaining the idea of meanings as being important, mm. even if it is all random and nothing exists after death, still, mm-hmm. we all need to feel like we have something important to do that gives us life, that gives us energy so if a person's life feels m- meaningless and they have no purpose, there will be symptoms there will be signals of that, so covering the basics is my answer to your question on the individual level. And then I also think that we have to take responsibility for causing violence and trauma in the world. Anyone Mm -hmm. who does that to any degree has to Mm -hmm. take responsibility because people aren't depressed in a vacuum. People exist in context, as Mm -hmm. you pointed out with like the biopsychosocial model. And so it, it sometimes makes so much sense given the environment that the person is in that they're severely depressed or anxious. Imagine just living in a super dangerous neighborhood where there's gunshots all the time and people are getting just accidentally shot by drive-bys and you're supposed to not feel anxious in that situation. So on a, on a systemic, societal, collective level, there's a lot of work we can do that I know in my heart would result in far much less incidence of what we call psychological disorders. And that scales from the local community level again to the massive cultural level, where someday we'll have to really take responsibility for, you know, war and violence and, and large scale atrocities. So yeah, that's that's my answer.
0: That was so beautifully said, and I couldn't agree more eliminating inequalities in mental health requires addressing systematic inequalities in society. And I just want to end it on that note. Nick, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. I thank you once again, and I really hope to have you back here soon again.
1: I would love that. And I hope that with your podcast you get to have the experience that you've given me of someone just reaching out out of nowhere and talking about how much they love your work because it just is so encouraging and energizing so thank you for appreciating what I'm putting out there and I'm excited to listen to all of your episodes and I'm excited for the world to receive your episodes
0: that is very kind of you thank you so so much once again and thank you to everyone else for tuning in and listening Until next time.